0: But when, but when we do return uh, from mission trips like this, uh, we, we tend to be on a spiritual high, you know, and, and those are good things. Or if we go to promise keeper event of old or a retreat or a camp, you know, we come back and we're riding on a spiritual high. And this is where Elijah found himself at the end of chapter 18. He was riding on a spiritual high. He was running with supernatural strength and endurance. Um about 30 miles or so. He's running to Jezreel. Uh, He ran ahead of the chariot of King Ahab. He wasn't afraid of the prophets that had been put to death. He wasn't the false prophets of Baal. He wasn't afraid of King Ahab or Queen Jezebel, uh, those political dictators. He, He wasn't afraid of the compromisers in Israel who couldn't make up their mind, whether it be Baal or Yahweh. After all, he was God's prophet, and God confirmed his authority through these supernatural activities and wonders and signs. Um, For example, God had stopped the rain from falling for three and a half years after um, Elijah prayed. Or the ravens delivered bread and meat to him every day and every night, and he saw God's hand of provision. Or um, flour and oil were miraculously replenished at the widow of Zarephath's house. Or the widow's son, when he eventually died, the young boy, Elijah, went upstairs, prayed for him uh, three times, and he was raised to life. And then ultimately, the fire of God fell from heaven, and it consumed the altar and the sacrifice, and even the stones, the dirt, and the water around the trench. It was the fire of God fell. Then the Israelites declared that Yahweh is the one true God and not Baal. False prophets were killed. Elijah must have been felt like Rocky, you know, on the top steps of Philadelphia, you know? da 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 you know? <clears throat> then comes chapter 9, 19, I mean, the next chapter, 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them, the prophets of Baal who were killed. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Holy smokes, what a contrast. Why the sudden fear and despair? Why the death wish? Was it simply because of a little old threat from a queen? Why would Elijah doubt God's protection and provision after all that God had displayed and done in his midst? Well, many have suggested that Elijah would have been discouraged because even after the display of all this supernatural activity, Israel's leaders had refused to repent still. King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, And as the leaders led, the nation would follow. In fact, Jezebel and Ahab's hatred of Elijah only intensified toward him after all of these signs and wonders. Like the time when Jesus miraculously rose Lazarus from the dead out of the tomb. He came out, you know, hopping like this. He was unwrapped and he was alive. People rejoiced, except the religious Pharisees saw that event. They reported it, and they they planned how they might kill Jesus and kill Lazarus again. How absurd is that? Why? John 3 tells us, light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In other words, they had unrepentant hearts. And these unrepentant hearts would have, from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they would have, again, influenced the nation to follow suit. And we know this because Ahab was the seventh king of Israel who led Israel into evil. But he was only the seventh. There would be 12 more kings of Israel And for the next 158 years, each of them leading Israel into more evil than the one before in the sight of the Lord. So they truly weren't repentant for the long haul. So Elijah headed into this remote desert place and prayed that God would spare him the misery and just end my life. Well, you know, fear and anxiety and depression, they're powerful. And they can strike at any moment, when least expected. When it seemed that Elijah should have been rejoicing and celebrating, he found himself in a depressed state. The first thing I want us to realize this morning is nobody is exempt from stress, from fear, from depression, anxiety, and mental illness. Nobody. Nobody. They are equal opportunity enemies. You may be the greatest apostle, whoever walked the face of the earth, like the Apostle Paul. You may be Apostle Paul. But what did Paul say in Second Corinthians? He said, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. You may have a heart after God like no one else, like King David had. And yet, he penned these words in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Or you may be one of the most respected prophets, named Elijah, who experienced this depression. None of us are exempt. But surely if anyone should be exempt, it should be faithful and obedient pastors, right? Wrong. Like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest preachers and pastors in England in the turn of the century, 1800s. God's favor rested on him like no other. In fact, his church in London grew to megachurch proportions. And as a young pastor preaching to over 10,000 people in a public hall one night, a prankster out in the congregation yelled, fire! And then people responded by trampling each other. And at the end of the night, there were seven dead and 28 who were severely injured, and Spurgeon would never be the same. His wife said, My my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. Spurgeon also battled those who opposed him when it came to theological truth. He battled for the truth, as we all would, uh, over important issues like the atonement, you know the atonement meaning what happened on the cross. You know what did Jesus accomplish on the cross, and and he also battled the authority of Scripture and he stood on that. But there are many colleagues who opposed his views, causing him great great stress as well. And we all know that stress produces physical ailments, oftentimes like heart disease and high blood pressure, sleepless nights. At age 33, Spurgeon became physically ill with burning kidney, gout, rheumatism, and stress. And then he felt guilty that he felt stressed. He felt guilty because he felt guilty, which added to more stress. Many presidents of the United States have suffered chronic depression as well, including John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Franklin Pierce, Calvin Coolidge, and of course, Abraham Lincoln, Before the age of 20, Abraham Lincoln had lost his newborn brother, his mother, his aunt, his uncle, his sister. And today we know that late um, adult depression can happen, especially after losing a parent at an early age. Lincoln's depression was so visible that those who knew him well, like William Herndon, a law professor, partner of his, he referred to Lincoln in this way. He said his melancholy dripped from him as he walked. When his 11-year-old son Willie died, then Lincoln's wife suffered mental breakdowns as well. And it was said of Lincoln that he was a man of sorrows, not unlike Jesus, who Isaiah prophesied about saying, Jesus, you would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. These trials of depression and anxiety didn't come to Elijah because of his disobedience and unfaithfulness, though. In fact, Elijah was completely faithful and obedient to God's call on his life. As would be the Apostle Paul in Philippians, he wrote, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Peter had the same attitude about suffering. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The sufferings in Christ. Namely, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then Jesus himself said, blessed are you when people insult you and and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, he wrote, though the trials may come from the world, the flesh and the devil, they are overruled and ordained by God. Do not expect to be crowned with gold, where he was crowned with thorns. So that's the first part of the message. The second part, the final part, I want to ask us how we can grow from these trials. Um, We need to depend on God. And God has promised that he will meet us in the midst of our trials and depression anxiety and stress and fear. So let's learn from Elijah's experience. God met Elijah in his physical need. God didn't just snap his fingers and say, Elijah, you're healed. You have no more stress. You have no more opposition. You have no more depression. You're great. Go for it. Boom. He didn't do that. Rather, God met Elijah where he needed him the most at that time he first met his felt needs, his physical needs, his needs for rest, hydration, and nutrition. Verse 5, Then Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And then after he slept all at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and then he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for your journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached of the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. God met his felt needs. Isn't it ironic? Of all that God could do to help Elijah in his deep depression, he said, Elijah, here's some food. Here's here's something to drink and take a nap. Very important. And God asks us to care for others in this like manner. In James 2, we read, If one of you says, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. When we get stressed out, one of the first things to go is the ability to sleep solidly. You get a good night's sleep. And with every poor night of sleep, we become even more discouraged and more depressed because we wake up and literally, physiologically, biologically, our serotonin in our body gets depleted. Every time we're stressed out, it just gets more and more depleted. For 13 nights, I couldn't sleep recently on my sabbatical at first because I was stressed post-COVID. And so every night I couldn't sleep. Boom, my serotonin went down. I didn't know what was happening to me. I had all these physical symptoms happening. I had no clue what was going on until I was told your serotonin is dropping. You need to plug those holes so that your serotonin gets... um, repleted instead of depleted and then pl- i was able to get some sleep aids to help me sleep and that began the process as well of healing and other medication and uh, so the doctors were a blessing to me when we get stressed out we have to be concern- we have to be cognizant of the warning signs in our lives and here are some of the warning signs they go under the acronym of halt Um, If we feel hungry, or lack of hunger, or if we're hungering for really bad stuff, be it food or other stuff that's not good for us, hunger for certain entertainment, things like that, then that's not good. Um, Anger would be the A, if we find ourselves angry all the time. L stands for loneliness, and T stands for tiredness. So these are the warning signs that we need to tend to ourselves physically. You see, God allowed Elijah to get good sleep. Then he provided food and water to eat right. And then he repeated it. Why? Here's why. Because as Christians, we're not just spiritual beings trapped in these bodies that are unimportant. There's a false teaching, asceticism in Scripture in the New Testament that said, the body is evil you can do with it as you wish, treat it as you want. You know, sexual promiscuity doesn't matter at all because it's only the spirit who lives within you that's important. And so the Greeks would separate the spirit from the mind, from the body, and they'd say, just, just take care of the spirit and you'll be good. Well, that was a false teaching. The Hebrew mindset said, no, we are holistic beings. We're created body, mind, and soul. In fact, one day, the dead in Christ will rise first, and our bodies will will be connected to our spirit, spirits in heaven, and forevermore will be perfected, spirit, mind, and body, which will be eternal. You will look like you when you get to heaven. I'm thinking, man, I wish I were better looking for eternity. Well, you know what will change in heaven? Not what we look like, but how we perceive others. Everyone will be beautiful, right? And plus, I'll have thicker hair. So. Um, anyway, so God allowed uh, Elijah to get sleep, and he tended to him physically, spiritually, emotionally. Um, can God's children experience sickness? Of course. I get headaches, and I take my ibuprofen, But we can also experience sickness emotionally, socially, mentally. For example, many pastors regularly experience the Monday blues. I've talked to many pastors who get down thinking, man, why did I say that? Or I wish I would have said that. I forgot to say the most important thing. Or why did I preach so lousy or... Or why did I respond to that person that way? Or we may receive critical emails or anonymous notes in the mail, unsigned notes. Your sermon was too long. Your sermon was way too short. Your sermon was too soft. It was too hard. It was too shallow. It was too deep. I didn't understand it. I wish you wouldn't have said that. So pastors deal with things like that because every one of us has different preference. So how did Elijah respond to this increased oppression? Opposition, I mean. What did did he do? he, He did what any of us would do. He complained. God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he responded, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So God tended to Elijah's emotional needs, not just his physical, but his emotional need. You see, Elijah felt rejected. He felt alone, and it was disheartening. After being this powerful vessel of God to um, engage all of these signs and wonders and miracles, Elijah would have thought that many now will believe in me. They will understand me. They'll join me. They'll support me. But that didn't seem to happen, apparently. Parents, if you've ever felt unappreciated or misunderstood by your kids, have you? Anyone? One. Well, you, you know what it means to feel emotionally alone then. Have you ever felt unappreciated or misunderstood by a spouse? Don't raise your hand. An employer... An employee, a co-worker, um, a parent, if you're a kid, or a friend, then you know what it feels like to feel alone and emotionally drained. No matter how faithful we are to God, no matter how much we seek God, we can feel very alone at times emotionally. Well, it's been said that we have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts that no one can fill except for God, right? We've all heard that. Pascal, I believe, said that. Well, Elijah needed a personal encounter with God. He needed to fill himself. He needed a God appointment in a major way. And so the Lord said in verse 11, "'Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, "'for the Lord is about to pass by. "'Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart "'and shattered the rocks before the Lord, "'but the Lord was not in the wind. "'After the wind, there was an earthquake.'" But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. In other words, God knew that Elijah needed more than bread and water and and sleep, he needed more than spectacular signs that he had witnessed. In his recent past, he needed more than uh, justice of killing the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal and judgment he needed a personal he needed a personal encounter with god a gentle whisper, a gentle whisper you know when when our kids are afraid at night or grandkids, we go into their bedroom and they're they're petrified because they had a nightmare, they think they saw something move, or whatever. We go in there and we say, go to sleep, kid! It's late! No, we don't do that, do we? Instead, we hold them close and we gently whisper to them. And that's what they need. They need an intimate touch. And this is what God did with Elijah. It's been said that um, the first half of life Uh, is about doing. There's books written about this. And and, uh, my spiritual director in Minnesota shared with me this insight that she was reading in this book and she recommended this book. I won't give you all the details, but basically the theme is the first half of life after we graduate from high school and college, we want to go out and do stuff. We want to accomplish things. We want to um, make our imprint on the world. And so it's all about doing, doing, doing and success and and notoriety, And, and that's okay, that's the foundation, you know, we establish for a successful life, but God said there's something more important than doing, 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 and it is being, being in my presence. God says, be still, and know that I am God, and so my spiritual director, she asked me a bunch of questions, and then she challenged me To be in God's presence, you see, my life is all about doing ministry, meeting with people, having meetings, um, preparing sermons, on and on. You know, and 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 she said, I think maybe God is trying to teach you now that that you can't do anything now because I was immobilized, literally, uh, for a month, a couple months. I didn't feel like doing anything. And uh, she said, I think God is trying to tell you just to be. So she said, drink deep from the well of God and just be in his presence. You don't have to do anything, just be. And so I've been learning to do that more and more, and, um, and that's what I continue to have to learn. What did it mean that God was in the wind? He was not in the wind, earthquake, and fire. <clears throat> Earth, wind, and fire, huh? I, I used to listen to that band. What does it mean that God was not in the wind, the earthquake, and the fire? I think many believe that the most effective method that God wants to use to get people's attention is to do something dramatic, and, and you know, just a little, unleash a little judgment on this world because we are so sinful and we're running so far away from you, God. Just do something spectacular. And shake us. And that's what we desire of God. But I believe, though, that God says no. You know, you know how repentance comes? It's through my kindness that leads people to repentance, Romans says. Not really by my judgment. Judgment will come in the future, but it's through my kindness. God's grace, mercy, and kindness and love will win people over. And through us as well. Through the sound of a whisper not through the earthquake and the fire. And I know this because I've talked to countless people who've been raised in churches that preach hellfire and brimstone and judgment. And and they said, man, I just thought God was such an angry God. And he was a wrathful God. And I feared God. In fact, I feel like I never measure up in God's presence. And many people have left their faith because of being raised in churches like that. And I've talked to equally as many people who said, I've come to Christ because I felt such love and kindness from my neighbor or from my Christian co-worker. And I was drawn to Christ through the incredible love that I felt. And after all, that's what Jesus did when he walked the earth, right? He attracted the children to himself and the outcasts and the hopeless, and they desired to build a, or begin a relationship with Jesus based on his love, not his judgment so in verse 13 after Elijah heard the voice this whisper and God asked him again what are you doing here Elijah and he repeated the same thing I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty the Israelites have rejected your covenant turned down the altars, put your prophets to death I'm the only one left and now you're trying to kill me they're trying to kill me too Even after multiple supernatural acts and a personal encounter with God, Elijah still struggled and complained. And I'm thinking, come on, Elijah, get a grip. You just heard from God? You saw all these spectacular miracles that I haven't seen in my lifetime. What is going on? Are you not in the word, Elijah? Are you not praying enough? Where's your faith, man? And then I realized I can't be hard on Elijah because I've done the same thing over and over again. In the course of my lifetime, God has answered countless prayers in my life. Specifically, a coincidence at first, but you, you string together hundreds of coincidences, you know, it is God's power. And then he's led me into many unexpected appointments. Even one a couple of days ago, I was praying for someone and I ran into his mother and I stopped my car. I hadn't seen her for year, over a year and she said, oh, glory to God, I can't believe you stopped. And it was another God appointment. I said, thank you, Lord. And then I won't tell you the rest of the story, but it was amazing. And then, and then he, he surprised me with his grace and blessing over and over again. But how soon I forget about God's faithfulness, the next trial I encounter. And then I begin to complain, and I get disappointed, and I get depressed, and, and I begin to doubt God knows that we're dust. <laughs> um, and, but then God met our, our not only physical, emotional need, but spiritual need as well. He, he meets Elijah spiritually. Why? How? Well, Elijah must have felt like a failure, a spiritual failure. The nation did not repent. He, he did not convince Ahab and Jezebel to lead God's people in a godly way. And so he wanted to die But God would restore Elijah spiritually. How in verse 15 through 17, he said, I want you to go anoint Hazel, king of Aram. And I want you to anoint Jehu, uh, son of king over Israel. And so he's basically saying, Elijah, here's your fresh call. I'm not through with you. I want you to go influence these future leaders. And they will be successful. So anoint them. Elijah, you still have purpose. Today, many believe that Lincoln's melancholy, his depression, would have disqualified him or made him a liability um, with all of his character flaws. There's no way he could be a president today, but according to writer Joshua Wolfe, he believes that Lincoln didn't do great things uh, because he solved the problem of his melancholy Rather, the problem of his melancholy was all the more fuel for the fire of his great work, and we know that is scripturally true. God works all things out for the good for those who love Him, and uh, um, uses even our weakness uh, to care for others for His glory. So, and then, and then, finally, God met Elijah in His relational need. Again, Elijah was lonely. I'm, I'm all alone. I'm all alone, Lord. It's just me. And then God said in verse 18, hey, Elijah, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all of whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. And that would have been encouraging. But I could be thinking, if I were Elijah, okay, well, who are these 7,000 people, these silent ones? None of them are close to me. And so, God went one step further. He said, I'm not only going to tell you about these 7,000, but I'm going to give you a friend to walk with you. In verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of uh, Shaphat. Uh, Shaphat. <laughs> he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, and Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. And then uh, verse 21, So Elijah left him and went back and took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And he burned his plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So Elisha became the right-hand man of Elijah, the disciple, the mentoree, if you will the friend. He needed that. Elijah needed an Elisha. And we all need someone like that to invest in or someone to encourage us. That's why we're the body of Christ. Uh, That is why it is not good for man to be alone and God created the woman. Um, That is why we are together as one church. Even Jesus had his inner circle Peter, James, and John. And he depended on them. It's been said that we have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts that God, only God can fill. But we also have a people-shaped vacuum in our hearts that God himself will not fill because he created us for one another to be a part of the body. So, what do we learn from Elijah? We learn that no one is exempt from from depression and anxiety. But we also meet that God won't abandon us when we're struggling. He will meet us right where we are. He will meet us physically by helping us be restored physically, food, water, eat right, get good sleep, provide care workers. He he will provide for us emotionally. He will reveal himself. He will gently whisper to us, even when we're crying out to him. He, he, will, he will meet us spiritually by restoring our purpose. Saying He will never say, hey, you're done, man. You're, you're over, woman. He, he always has purpose for us. And then finally, he will meet us relationally by putting us in the body of Christ to love one another. Let's pray. So Lord, this, this is so uh, important for each one of us uh, and I thank you for Elijah and, and for the lessons that we can learn from his life. Lord, if there are those who are going through darkness right, right this morning and who are here, I pray, Lord, that you will gently whisper to them and, and you will provide those who care for them as well physically and, and relationally. Um, and I pray, Lord, that if we know anyone who's like that, who's walking through difficult times, that we will be available, Lord, that that our purpose uh, will be clear and that we will care for others in tangible ways and and share with them the love of Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.